Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6, we'll get uh, started. Let me give you a little historical background. We're studying uh, 2 Samuel for the next 12 weeks, or 12 weeks total, about 10 weeks to go. And this is really the story of David, the King David, and how God had taken him from following the sheep and made him king. And his biography, so to speak, is largely centered in this book. Right now, today, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 6, and it's really about 10,000, it's about 1004 B.C. David has been waiting for 20 years to become king, and he's been finally anointed over all Israel. Remember, for seven and a half years, he was just king of Judah, the southern tribe, and that now is ended, and all the tribes have come and anointed him king. And following that anointing, he conquered the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem has been in the center of Israel for generations, but it had never been controlled by the Israelis. It had always been controlled by the Jebusites since the time of Joshua. The city of Jerusalem is a natural fortress. For those of you who've been there, it's surrounded on a valley by three sides. There are three valleys surrounding. It's almost like a mountain peninsula. The only time you can actually access Jerusalem is from the north. The valleys are on the south, east, and west. So it's very much a natural fortress and, an, and a nice place to conquer. Uh, Joab, David's commander, has conquered this by crawling up through the water tunnel. They actually had a spring outside the city walls, and he crawled up through that tunnel and took the city from the inside at that point. He selected the city of Jerusalem as the fortress for quite a number of reasons. It was militarily and politically strategic. Rob is going to show you a map of the kingdom that David inherited. Right before David became king, the ten tribes to the north are operated by Saul's son Ishbosheth, and David uh, is king of the southern tribe of Judah in Hebron. If you'll notice Jerusalem, it's right on the border between the northern Israeli tribes and the southern tribe of Judah. It's really right at the geographical center of the nation of Israel. So if you're king, you want troops that have easy access to all parts of the kingdom. So central location is very, very critical. It's also a very politically neutral location that's going to help unify the tribes. Because until David actually conquered the, the, uh, the city, it was not held by any one of the tribes. Because it's a border town held by the Jebusites. No tribe could in Israel could say, well, you're playing favorites because your capital is in the tribe of A or B or C or D. It was not held by any of the tribes. So when David conquered it, it was a logical uh, capital for military reasons, for political reasons, for unification of the state reasons. And ultimately, God directed David to take Jerusalem and make it the capital of Israel because a thousand years and change in the future... God already had ordained a date where his son, Mashiach Nagid, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was going to be crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. 
for the sins of the world. Now, you'll notice in, in chapter 6, 5 and 6, right after David's coronation, shortly after the coronation, the Philistines, which had been historical enemies of Jerusalem, launched an attack. Surprise, surprise. When David was ruling over Judah, just the southern tribes, they probably thought he was just a local chieftain. Now they're going to try and dislodge him before his kingdom becomes established. So they launch an attack at a, at a, at a location called the Valley of Rephaim, R-E-P-H-A-I-M, which means giants. Uh, this is going to really, the Valley of Rephaim is literally the Valley of the Giants, and it's just west of Jerusalem, not more than two or three miles. So it's very, very close to this fortress. The Philistines are to the west, then you have the Valley of Rephaim, and then you have the elevated hill region of Jerusalem. So they line up in battle formation, and David does something very interesting. Before he attacks them, he prays, and he says, God, should I attack him, number one, and number two, if I attack him, will you give me the victory? Now, for those of you that have never been in battle, I have not, I would suggest that that's probably a really good thing to do, right? Before you're going to launch an attack and before somebody attacks you, ask God for his plan, his will, his guidance. God did promise David the victory. David did attack them. David did destroy them. And then David gave God the credit. He named the battlefield Baal Perazim, which means Lord of Breakthroughs. So when God does answer your prayer, when God does hear your voice and gives you the victory over something, do you give him the credit? Or do you say, I always knew I was smarter than I thought I was? <laughs> uh, not really, right? So, surprise, surprise, the Philistines come back a couple years later and they attack him in the same location, second time, same hymn, second verse, right? Baal, I mean the, uh, the Valley of the Giants. Here's what's interesting. The second time they attacked in the same place, David did not assume that he should use the same strategy that was successful the first time. Now you would think if you had a strategy that worked once, well, for heaven's sakes, why wouldn't you just do it again, right? That's logically what we do. David said, Lord, what do you want me to do? God gave him a different strategy. He said, attack him from behind. Interesting. David did, followed God to the letter. God gave him a victory again. Here's what's interesting. This will be a theme throughout our lesson today. Details matter. Details matter. Don't assume that God's plan for you tomorrow is the plan that he's going to have for you the day after tomorrow. God has a different plan for us each day. Some things are very consistent, right? You do the same thing over and over again. But sometimes God says, no, I have a different strategy for you tomorrow. And the only way you and I will know that is if we do what? Ask him every day, Lord, what do you want me to do today? What do you have for me today? And sometimes when you pray that prayer, you'll get a phone call. And you go, I wasn't expecting that. Well, that's part of God's plan, right? Have you ever noticed that God works a lot in the interruptions? How many have been interrupted this week? How many of you liked it? Yeah, yeah. We usually say, God, I thought my plan was a pretty good plan. Well, his plan is superior, and those interruptions are where God wants to work through. So the, the bulk of our lesson today, we're going to spend on probably David's greatest accomplishment.
David had made Jerusalem the political capital of the nation already. Now he wants to make it the spiritual capital as well. So if you go to 2 Samuel 6, verse 1, let's start. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. You'll notice the word Lord in your Bible is all capital letters. That's Yahweh, the name of God, the name of God. So the Ark of the Covenant represents the very presence of God among his people. And God, as you know, created us so he could have a relationship with us. He wants a relationship with us. And if you have a relationship with somebody, you need a meeting place. You need to have a place to meet where you can have that relationship. Now, God had given Moses the exact specifications for this meeting place. It was called the tabernacle, right? Tabernacle means place of meeting or tent of meeting. It's the place where God came down and met with his people, the people of Israel. Now, the specific place where God met was not the tabernacle in general, but it was inside the tabernacle in a room called the Holy of Holies. Right? It was the innermost sanctuary of the tent of meeting. And inside that holy of holies, there was a wooden box that was completely covered in gold. And that was called the Ark of the Covenant. Rob's going to show you a picture of that or a number of them. Now, for many people in our culture, you know the only way they know about the Ark of the Covenant? Because they've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Actually, the Ark symbolizes the covenant that God had made with his people Israel. So it's about a relationship at heart. And that relationship says Israel will be God's people and he will be their God. And the ark is symbolic of so many things in our relationship with God. If you'll notice, the ark is a box, acacia wood, covered with gold, and on top of the box is a lid. That lid is made out of solid gold and it's called the mercy seat. Mercy seat. On the mercy seat are two cherubim, which are angels, and those two angels are facing each other and their wings are pointed toward each other. Once a year, the high priest of Israel would go into the Holy of Holies carrying blood, and he would sprinkle blood on the top of the mercy seat right between the cherubim, right? On top of the mercy seat, he would sprinkle blood between the wings on top of that gold lid, and he would do that to make atonement for the sins of the nation. So on earth, the dwelling place of God on earth was between the cherubim in between those wings on top of the mercy seat. That's where God dwelled with the children of Israel. It's an earthly picture of the worship and the holiness of heaven. Obviously, when you read Revelation 4 and 5, you see the angels worshiping. Isaiah 6, you see the angels worshiping the Lord. And the sprinkled blood from an innocent lamb is a foreshadowing of what? The blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all sin. The perfect lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Now, several decades before David, this Ark of the Covenant had been captured by Israel's arch enemy, the Philistines, at the Battle of Apek. And they took it into Philistia. And God judged them with plagues and death and infectious diseases and tumors and all sorts of very, very, very 
devastating plague, so they returned to Ark to Israel. And they returned to Ark to Israel by putting it on a cart. And they had two milk cows that carried that cart into Israel and left their calves behind, which was demonstrated proof to the Philistines that this must be a God thing, right? Because moms don't usually leave their babies. These were milk calves. So it was returned to Israel to a little village called Beth Shemesh. And some of the villagers at Beth Shemesh Boy, howdy. It was Father's Day, so I... <laughs> you know, something, nothing is sacred with Rob. I'm just saying. We were talking about being struck dead from irreverence, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's not human so, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I love Steve, yes. So God had, had, in essence, judged the Philistines with plagues. They returned it to Israel, and here's where Israel didn't get it. The village of Beth Shemesh takes the lid off the ark and looks into it because they want to see the ark, the, ta tab the table, tablet, the Ten Commandments, and God strikes them dead. Literally, fire from heaven strikes them dead for their irreverence and their disobedience. So they get terrified, they pack the ark up, and they move it into the house of a man called Abinadab. And that is, he's located in Kiriath-Jurim, same town as Baal-Judah, different name. So this kind of gives you an idea where Kiriath-Jurim is related to Israel. It's a little hill town. By the way, both Jerusalem and Kiriath-Jurim are in a hill. There's a little valley in between them. It's right on the border of Israel and Philistia. It's about six miles from Kiriath Germ to Jerusalem. And the ark stayed in this family's home for decades, probably 20, 30 years at that point. So now David says, I want to bring the ark from this private residence back to Jerusalem. I've built a tent for it. I want the ark that symbolizes the presence of God himself to be the very center of the nation of Israel, which is a good thing, right? So 1 Corinthians 13, for those of you that don't want to cross-check, it gives us a little more background. How did David go about making this decision, which is interesting? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Then David consulted with the captains of the thousands and the hundreds, even with every leader. David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it is from the Lord our God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel, also to the priests and Levites, and let us bring the ark of our God to us. For we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. Sounds pretty good. Here's the principle. Advice before action is essential. But God's directions transcend human opinions. Advice before action is essential. But God's directions transcend human opinions. There's two mistakes you can make. Number one is to act without wise counsel, right? Action without advice, without counsel, without thought is, leads to foolishness. The secondary issue is who are you getting advice from? Right? So David, when you look at his life, 
he's got a habit of asking God for advice. Nine separate times we see David inquiring of the Lord. He's asking for specific advice about what he should do, and God always responded to him. Four times in relationship with the city of Keliah in 1 Samuel 23, he asks God for advice. God answers. Once with the Amalekites in Ziklag, 1 Samuel 30. Once with the city of Hebron in 2 Samuel 2, 2. Twice with the attack of the Philistines in 2 Samuel 5. And once after a three-year famine in the land in 2 Samuel 21. Nine different times it says, and David inquired of the Lord, and David inquired of the Lord, and David inquired of the Lord. That's a good model. Obviously, David was a man of prayer. He wanted to know what God thought. Now, the idea to bring the ark back into Jerusalem came from the Holy Spirit. Interesting. David's got a history of always asking God's counsel, but this time he apparently asked every human leader he could find, but there's no record that he asked God. Apparently, he assumed that, of course, God would approve of bringing the ark into Jerusalem. And God did approve of David's motives, but God did not approve of David's methods. So here's a little application. We've talked about this before. Always talk with God before you talk with people. If you have a question, I wonder what I should do here. Who do you talk to? Who do you ask? Who do you seek advice from? And if you say, the only person I talk to is me because I'm the smartest person I know, you need a new class of friends, right? None of us are that smart. So asking advice is critical, but always talk with God before you talk with people. And when you get human opinion, always evaluate human opinion by God's word, not vice versa. You never interpret scripture through the lens of human opinion. You always interpret human opinion through the lens of God's word of scripture. Human opinion is no substitute for God's commands, which we're gonna find out right now. 2 Samuel 6, verse three. How do they get the ark back to Jerusalem? They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, that's the brother of Ohio. This is Ahio. <laughs> the sons, you know, just saying. <clears throat> the sons of Abinadab were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But... When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen nearly upset it. Verse 7, And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. Here's the principle. Obedience honors God and results in blessing. Disobedience dishonors God and brings about Discipline. So David's orchestrated this great celebration. They're bringing the ark of God back to Jerusalem. The symbol of the very presence of God is going to be central 
to the life of, of, of this nation, and that is a wonderful thing. And they've got many, many kinds of instruments. This is a musical procession. It's a, it's a worship procession. They're bringing God's symbol back to the middle of the land. And we're not exactly sure how this happened, but it says the oxen nearly upset the cart that was carrying the ark. I mean, there was a lot of noise. Maybe the oxen got spooked with the noise or all the, the dancing and stuff, or maybe they stumbled on uneven ground. Uh, a lot of these um, uh, roads between these countries or between these cities were, uh, were rough and rocky at that point. At any rate, it appeared that the ark was going to fall on the ground off the cart. And one of Abinadab's sons, Uzzah, is walking by there, and he reaches out and grabs a hold of the ark to steady it. Why would he do that? Anybody? Stupid, yeah, okay, but why would Uzzah reach out to grab the ark? So What? Reflex, yeah. So it wouldn't fall, right? He didn't want the ark of God on the ground. Now, from a human standpoint, that's a very good thing to do. Question. Do you think the God who made the heavens and the earth needs help to keep his ark on a cart? So Uzzah assumed that God needed help. You, I mean, after all, you wouldn't want God's ark to become muddy or dirty, right? Apparently, God had a different point of view because he struck him dead on the spot. Now, this celebration goes from joy to terror in an instant. The music stopped, the dancing stops, everything stops, and David can't figure out what had happened. The truth of it is David had done a right thing in a wrong way. And that turns a good thing into a bad thing. God's work must be done God's way to secure God's blessing. Now, David had very, very good intentions God loved his motive to bring honor to Jesus Christ, to bring honor to God, glory to God, good intentions. But David had broken four commandments, specific commandments related to the ark with this intention of bringing the ark. And since he didn't ask God's counsel, he broke them. First, the wrong transportation was being used. They moved the ark on a cart. And in Exodus 25, 14 to 15, God had commanded that the ark was only to be carried by men holding poles that passed through the rings on the side. You saw the picture of the ark that Rob showed you. There's rings on the side of the ark and there's poles. Nobody touched the ark. You just touched the poles. And you picked up the poles, put the poles on your shoulder, and you walked forward at that point. The Philistines had moved the ark on a cart. So Israel was just copying what the Philistines had done. They had forgotten God's specific commands about how to move his ark. They just copied the culture. Big mistake. And we do it all the time here. We're blind in many cases to what God says. We just kind of do what the culture does. Secondly, the wrong people were moving the ark. God had specifically commanded in Numbers 7, verse 9, that the ark was only to be carried by a specific family in the tribe of Judah, the family of the Kohathites. They were the only ones who were to move the ark. And these two brothers, Indiana and Ohio, they were, they were leading the ark and they were not part of this family. What did we say? Details matter. 
details matter with God. Third, wrong transportation, wrong people. They moved the ark uncovered where people could look into it. God had commanded the ark was covered before being moved because it was forbidden to look into it. And this verse kind of says it all. Numbers 4.15. This is God commanding Moses. When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is about to set out after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. So last of all, it was forbidden for anyone to touch the ark and Uzzah violated that command and died for his sins. Now here's my big question. Where are the Levites today with David? They're the ones who have been tasked with the responsibility of moving the ark. They had the specific commands that's been in the family for hundreds of years. Where were they? Didn't anybody tell David, by the way, that's a violation you're planning on doing. David, as king was commanded to write out a copy of the law, word for word. By the way, if you really want to know God's word, write it out by hand. When I do scripture memory, I write it out by hand. There's something about writing it out that helps. So that was the command of God. Every king of Israel, write out your own personal copy of the law so that you can know it, meditate on it, study it. I don't know whether David had done that at this point in time, but clearly he did not follow what God had commanded. I believe had he known, he would. I just think he was ignorant. He did not know because he had failed to study and the Levites had neglected their responsibility to tell him. Verse 7 says that God struck Uzzah dead because of his what? What does your scripture say? Irreverence. This is one of the most key verses you will read. Leviticus 10.3. God is speaking to Moses and he says, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. This is the heart of why Uzzah was struck down. To reverence someone or to revere God means to have deep respect, profound awe, honor and devotion. And Uzzah had failed to treat God as holy. And you say, well... This seems like a little overreaction on God's part. He touches the ark and he gets torched. And the the, the Hebrew there literally means fire. I've read a number of commentaries that say he literally exploded, which would be a pretty dramatic death next to the ark at that point. But God takes his holiness so seriously, far beyond what we understand. So what does holy mean? Holy literally means to be separate. The verb is means to cut, literally, to cut and to separate, to be a cut above, to be unique, to be one of a kind, to be wholly different or other. The truth of it is there is an infinite gulf between creator God and everything else in his creation. Everything else. There's an infinite gap between God the creator and his creation. We treat God as holy when we acknowledge that he alone is God, that he alone is unique, that there is no other God but him. What did Pastor Roger say this morning? What's the Shema? Shema. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There is only one God. There's not more than one. We dishonor God when we elevate and worship the creature, when we worship the creation instead of the creator. If we acknowledge God as the infinite, pure, powerful creator, we'll, you'll know it because you will love him, you'll fear him, and you will obey him. If we put man in the center, if we worship the human race, if we worship Mother Nature, which our culture vastly does at that point in time, you will exalt humanity and you will not see God as worthy of all worship, then you will disrespect him and disobey him, and that's what Uzzah did. Uzzah dishonored God because he disobeyed him. He touched holy things with sinful hands and God told him not to. He should have let the ark fall on the ground. Do you know why? The mud was less contaminating than sinful human hands. If the ark falls on the mud, it doesn't get contaminated with sin. It's just mud. Right? When human hands who are sinful and willful and disobedient at that point, violating God's command, when they touch the holy thing, obviously it contaminates more than simple dirt. Now here's one of the things I think happened. I think this ark has been in Uzzah's family for a couple of decades. In the house. I think they'd gotten really familiar with it. I'm pretty comfortable with it. Maybe even a little casual with it. Well, yeah, the ark's in the back bedroom. You know, we don't go in there, but, you know, it's, it's in our place, right? You kind of get used to the things of God. And it's easy to do. It is easy to take God for granted. It's easy to be a little casual. One of the reasons we take God for granted, how often do people sin? How frequently do you get punished by God immediately following your sin? Pretty seldom, as a matter of fact. We sin pretty nonstop, and God doesn't seem to punish people frequently. I mean, sometimes, but I mean, he withholds his judgment. The truth is, God sees all sin, hates all sin, and someday he will judge all sin. I read this week, someone has said that walking into God's presence in heaven is like walking outside your spaceship without your spacesuit. You know what will happen when you do that in a vacuum? Poof. You explode. You disappear. Instant death, right? However, the God of the Bible is not only holy, he's also merciful. He's gracious. This is the wonder of the gospel, that God loves people and withholds back his judgment. And he withholds his judgment in order to give people time to what? Repent and be reconciled. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Yes, we know that. Every one of us in this room has experienced God's mercy and God's patience or we wouldn't be here, right? All sinners deserve death. So the real question is not, why did God strike Uzzah dead for his sin? The real question is, how come God doesn't strike every sinner dead right now? Because what? All have sinned, and the wages of sin is death, right? So you look in the Bible. There's very few instances of this, but there are four instances where God does strike the sinner dead immediately following the sin. Very instructive. Most of the time, God withholds judgment. 
In these four cases, God strikes people dead. In most of these instances, a matter of fact, all four of these came about when God was instituting a new program of dealing with his people. When God first instituted the sacrificial system at the tabernacle, Aaron is the high priest and he has four sons and the oldest two are named Nadab and Abihu. And they go into the holy place carrying strange fire. God told them specifically, you take fire from the brazen altar, the fire that came down from heaven, that's holy fire, and you use that for all activities, off uh, the incense burning, etc., etc., has to come from the brazen altar. And they said, no, we want to bring strange fire. We'll get fire from the campfire outside the tabernacle. God struck them dead. Apparently, when you read the narrative, they had been drinking, and they came into God's presence drunk, carrying directly counter to his command, strange fire, not holy fire. And so they defiled God's house with their drunken, deliberate disobedience. God struck them dead on the spot. And that's where we read Leviticus 10.3, if you want to know where this is told. And God said, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. You cannot come into my holy house, my holy place, and then dishonor me. I won't tolerate it. Right after Israel had entered into Canaan, Joshua led them across the land. Just before they surround Jericho and just before the walls come down, God gives them a command. He says, I'm going to give you Jericho and every valuable thing in the city of Jericho, what's supposed to be dedicated to? It's going to be dedicated to God. So all the valuables from Jericho, you bring to the tabernacle and you give them as an offering to God. And there was an Israelite called Achan. And he got a little greedy. And he decided he was going to steal some of that stuff from the city for himself. God commanded that they stone him to death. And you go, whoa, that's pretty severe. Death by stoning for theft. It's not the theft. It's who he stole it from. It's a violation of God's holiness. In the New Testament, the church has just begun. And there are a couple... And you know their names, Ananias and Sapphira. And they have some land that they want to donate, a gift to the church. No problem. You're free to give or free not to give. It's your call between you and the Lord. Problem. They give a gift and they lie to God and the church about how much it is. They sell a piece of land and they tell God and the church that we're given all the proceeds and really they kept a chunk of them back. God says, you can give whatever you want. Don't give anything. That's between you and me. I have no issue with that. But lying to the Holy Spirit and lying to the church about what you're giving because you want the approval of men, you want people to see you as extra charitable, that dishonors God. And God struck them both dead. Every single one of these people refused to treat God as holy by obeying him. They claimed to know God, and yet they disrespected His holiness by their disobedience. I was thinking about a word picture. It's kind of like a bride coming down the aisle wearing white, and somebody decides they're going to throw mud and motor oil all over her. You got the picture? That would be called dishonoring her because you are dirtying the purity 
of the outfit that she's wearing. Sin always dishonors God. And sin always must be paid for. By the way, I used to read these and I thought, boy, these people are number one, two, and three, and four in hell. I'm not convinced of that. Just because God struck them dead doesn't mean you won't see them in heaven. Here's why. You and I are never saved by what we do or what we fail to do. We are saved by what? By what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has paid our sin debt, and either you accept his payment for your sin or you pay for it yourself. Now, I don't know the heart of where these four individuals were, but I know at the time they were struck dead, they were in rebellion and they were in disobedience. God knows where their heart or how, what their life was before that at that point. But when God judges sin immediately, it is a message to his people that God takes sin seriously. And he won't tolerate it. You and I demonstrate that we take God seriously when we obey him, right? Now, our culture is pretty casual about sin, would you say? Pretty casual about sin. As a matter of fact, um, most of us in the room have lived long enough to the point where sin is no longer, you really don't even criticize it because the culture has redefined it. Culture says that's not sin, that's just a matter of opinion. That's just a matter of, in other words, truth is relative. In 1929, as I recall, in the city of Chicago, yes, yes, yeah, the history books tell me that uh, Al Capone was running Chicago at that point in time, and there was a little beef over who was going to run the rum trade, the, 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 the beer trade, the alcohol trade. And there was something called the Saturday Night Massacre. I think there was about seven mobsters that were killed. And that act was so heinous in the eyes of the nation that it was the impetus to get rid of prohibition. It, people talked about it for months. How many murders do we see? Has it become routine? That's sad. That's really sad. It's also terribly scary in many ways because it says that at some point in Romans 1, God says, I'm going to turn you over. You want your way? Have it your way. And now we have. And that is a form of judgment. When God gives you your way, that is not love. I mean, it is love because he honors your will, but it is a form of judgment. So Uzzah is struck dead and the whole nation stops. Verse 8. This struck me as odd. It says, David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perizuza to this day, verse 9. So David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside into the house of Obadinim the Gittite. Here's the principle. A healthy fear of holy God is good for your health. A healthy fear of holy God is good for your health. Now, I don't know whether David was angry because he had expected God would bless his effort to bring the ark back to Jerusalem, and instead of God's approval, he got God's judgment. 
but he was also afraid of God. And a sober fear of God is healthy because it reminds us of who he is and who we are. And the primary thing to remember about that is God is God and you aren't. There's many, many people in our world that need to be reminded of that. In his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis has Mr. Beaver describing Aslan, the king of Narnia, to a human girl named Susan. They're having this conversation. Mr. Beaver tells Susan, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, asked Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Our world is filled with people who want a safe God. They want a God they can control and command. They want a God who is powerful enough to give them what they want, but not powerful enough to tell them what to do. Just a hint. When you are face to face with a lion in the wild, you are not the one in control. Not for nothing are they called the king of beasts. The God of heaven and earth is not safe. He's not in a cage. He's not on a leash. He's almighty God, the king of the universe. But the good news is our great God is also a good God who loves his creation. God is not safe in the sense that he can be controlled. Nobody can control him, but he's a good God. He is a loving father to his children and a terrifying judge to his enemies. Verse 11. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, 90 days. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling, which is a one-year-old. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Here's the principle. Doing God's work in God's way brings God's blessing and our joy. Doing God's work in God's way brings God's blessing and our joy. Now, David is terrified of God, and God honors David's motives to bring the ark in because he blesses the house of Obed-Edom. So the ark of God set in the house of Obed-Edom, and God is blessing. And I thought, well, how, do you, how does he know? How does David know that God's blessing the house of Obed-Edom? Well, in an agricultural era, blessing was often expressed through fertility. Larger crops, bigger herds, more children. I haven't read a commentator that says, well, it's likely that every single one of the herds, the females became pregnant, and maybe all of the wives in Obed-Edom's household, his son's wives, became pregnant within a 90-day period. I mean, if you want evidence of the blessing of God in that era, fertility was life. Okay, so that might have been the way that they knew that God was blessing this house. 
So David's encouraged. If God's blessing where the ark is, he's going to try again to bring it in the house of God. But in that 90-day period, he's actually opened the word of God. He studied and he found out exactly how God commanded to handle his ark. Because details matter. Have you ever read God's commands to Noah about constructing the ark? They are not approximate. They are detailed specifications. When God gave Moses the instructions to build the tabernacle on the ark, there are chapters of instructions, a chunk of the book of Exodus, chapters of them, precisely how you are to build this. David himself, in a few years, God's going to tell him how to build the temple. He's going to give David the plan for the temple. Solomon does the building, but God gives David the blueprint. They are precise instructions. One of the things I'm impressed with with Scripture, you never see the words God and approximate in the same sentence. God is kind of okay approximately with, uh, you know, a little bit of holiness. Uh, he's okay with a little bit of sin. No, God is precise. God is exact. His mercy and his grace gives us much leeway. But never forget who you're dealing with. By the way, David had studied the word of God so he knew how he was supposed to bring the ark in. How do you and I know what God's will for our lives are? You've got it in your lap. And here's the interesting point. I know you know this. Whatever God writes down in his word, he expects you to know and obey and you will be accountable for it. You want incentive to study the word of God? It's a love letter from the king of kings. It will satisfy your soul like no other. But he also expects you to know what he said because he wrote it down in stone, right? Now, it, here's what's interesting. It says that after six paces, David offered an, an offering. How would you like to be one of the four Levites that got to be number one in line to pick the ark up? And Uzzah got struck dead 90 days before. You might be a little nervous. Okay, I know the word says this. I'm going to pick the ark up according to God's word, and we're going to move it. After six paces, David wants to make sure that God is pleased, so he says, stop, hold it, wait. He offers offerings, sacrifices. Make sure God is pleased with his actions. God is pleased with David's obedience, and they bring the ark into the city with great, great joy. Obedience always brings joy. This week, every day this week, Ask God what he would have you do and also ask him how you want, how he wants you to do it. You know, when you do God's work in God's way, you honor him and he blesses you. When we do God's work in our wisdom and in our strength, it's never going to work the way God wanted it to. So let's summarize. Action, advice before action is essential. So mistake number one is taking action without advice. Number two, God's directions always transcend human opinions. There's nothing wrong with asking God's people for advice, but make sure you ask God first and make sure you evaluate all human opinion through the lens of God's word. Number two, 
Obedience honors God and results in blessing. Disobedience dishonors God and brings about discipline. A healthy fear of holy God is good for your health. If you have no fear of God, you do not understand what you're dealing with and your opinion of yourself is way out of whack. And lastly, doing God's work in God's way always brings God's blessings and our joy. Okay. Thank you all. Now that you know... Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.